0: How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So if I have not met you... My name is Andrea. I'm here. um, I serve on staff here at Christ City Church, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning. All right. So we're in the middle of a series on John. It's right now we're in the first of what will be over the next year a three-part series on the Gospel of John. And so this first section that we're in, that we've been in, on the first five chapters of John, we've been calling a story of belief. So these chapters recall encounters that Jesus has with um, various people, all revolving around who he is and what to believe as truth. So we've looked at John the Baptist and his declaration of who Jesus is. Um, we've looked at um, an encounter that the disciples had with Jesus, where he asked, where the disciples asked a bunch of questions. Um, and Jesus um, has an invitation, gives an invitation for them to believe. And then we've, last week we looked at Jesus's first public acts of miracle and ministry. And so in all of these, John is imploring us um, that he wrote this so that you may believe and have life. The point of the book. So this week we're gonna look at Jesus's encounter with Nicodemus, a guy named Nicodemus, who was also given a challenge and an invitation to believe. So that's where we're headed today, okay? To start, though, I, um, I thought that I would share um, a story with you about a proud parenting moment I, I had this week. I feel like I complain about my kids a lot, so I feel like any chance to kind of brag on them a little bit, I should probably take. So I have two kids. I have uh, two daughters, Jolie and Rowan. They're in second grade and kindergarten. And this week, Rowan, the kindergartner, brought home this assignment and showed it to me. And I swear to you, I almost cried. So let me give you a little bit of backstory, so you can take part in this pride that I have for my kid, because you will. So when I got married, um, I decided to change my last name to Drew's last name, even though I felt like acronym was a little bit of a downgrade. Now, (laughs) let me explain. Um, Some of Drew's family is here today, so I'm not trying to offend them including my in-laws um so let me explain it was only a downgrade for one reason only one reason not the people it was associated with nothing it was a downgrade because of the cursed second n at the end of ackerman you see that m-a-n-n so i i decided to do it out of my love for drew to take on this curse second end curse um so Uh, we've been married for uh, almost 11 years and in that time i have it's just become a part of my life experience as an ackerman uh, to constantly correct the spelling of my last name usually multiple times so i'll be like at a doctor's office or something and it it always goes like this they'll be like i'm trying to check in and they're looking for me in the system and it's always like i'm so sorry ma'am like you're just not coming up in the system like we can't find you um, and at first, in the early years, that used to p- make me panic because I was like, I filled out something wrong or, or something. Now, I just, w- I like politely wait for them to finish because I know that's coming. And then I just say, did you add, is there a two ends on the end of Ackerman? Inevitably, they add the second end. Oh, there you are. I'm so sorry, man. I'm like, that's okay. happens all the time because it literally does. Um, so, th- it's a story of my life. And now, I have two kids who have been born into having this name also the cursed second in Ackerman. So this week, this is the story, Rowan, the kindergart- my kindergartner, comes home with an assignment in which she has been um, having to practice writing her whole name in kindergarten, so Rowan Ackerman. So she gives me the assignment, and um, so there's this picture of, this, this is what the teacher wrote as, uh, as what Rowan was supposed to do. Now, again, I filled out all the forms correctly I do all of Rowan's things that are labeled are correct. They have the second end. This is what the teacher put up there. Now, freaking second end. seriously. Now, if you know Rowan at all, and if you don't, you totally should, she's a great little person to know. If you know her at all, you know that when it comes to academics, um, not everything, but when it comes to academics, Rowan does not, she will not go like the extra mile in (laughs) academics. Girlfriend's just trying to get, like, the the minimum to get through and, like, do what she wants to do. And she would tell you that and be proud of that. Like, I did it, you know. So I'm thinking, I look at this and I'm thinking, okay, well, Rowan's probably just going to do this and we're going to have to, like, have some kind of family meeting about this is how you spell your last name, child, welcome to the curse. Um, But this is what Rowan did. Okay. Second N. Two Ns in her name. I was so proud that she wrote her name the right way. And you can see that even when she was done, the teacher tried to correct it and be like, why is this second end here? Like, we don't know how to spell her own name. I'm just saying. <laughs> I was so proud of this assignment that I texted, I took a picture of it, and I texted Drew's whole family. We have like a family text. And I was like, look at this. Look what happened. Second end. Because I knew that they would understand. The struggle was real. I did. I texted it to them all. So it, it's just funny because I don't think that I, we never, like Drew and I never sat down and taught Rowan like how to write her name. It's not a thing that, that I did. Um, but Rowan knows how it's spelled because it's her name. It's the, it's the one she was given at her birth. This is the name that she sees as a part of her mom's name and her dad's name and her sister's name. And so she knows how it's spelled because it's important to her. And I think even at five, She knows in some way that this identifies her, this name identifies her with the most important people in her life right now, which are the people who in fact gave her this name. Um, It's an important part of her identity, it represents the family that she was born into, and and now it's how she identifies herself with our family, which is where her life originated. Now Rowan didn't choose her name, in fact, she, um, she recently told me that she would have chosen a different name for herself, which was only a little bit insulting. Um, <laughs> she didn't choose her name, she didn't choose her identifying family. Her name was chosen by those that gave birth to her, her parents. So our our names, our identities are initially determined by our families of origin, for good or bad, and we learn to associate our birth-given identity with our identity. It defines our lives, both who we are and what we do. Our name and identity, even when we meet new people, that's what we lead with. We we lead with our name because other people have no context for who we are and it gives them some insight into, into who we are based on who we are related to. It's important. So today, we're in John 3, and we're looking at the narrative of a man named Nicodemus and his encounter with Jesus. And this, this is how the story starts. We're in John 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. So the first thing that John does is give us Nicodemus's identifying information, his name, um, his position, and his heritage. So Nicodemus was not just a Jew. He was a Pharisee. Um, And a Pharisee was a religious and legal leader of other Jews. And in Jesus' time, your birth, meaning that that would encompass, your birth would encompass your family lineage and also the place you were born, determined um, your status, your level of honor, and um, any opportunities, like the kind of opportunities you would be afforded for your whole life. So, for Nicodemus to be a Pharisee meant that he had been born into a good amount of privilege because of his lineage. He had religious and social privilege as a Pharisee, and that had afforded him opportunities for education that others probably didn't have. As a physical descendant of Abraham, as all Pharisees would have been, Nicodemus was highly valued in society on the basis of his birth and the dignities and privileges that came with it. So, when he comes to Jesus, which you'll find out that he does, He's, he's bringing to bear his birth identity as this like, top-bred, highly-educated religious leader. So the story continues. He came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. So Nicodemus in this is referring to what has taken place in chapter 2, which we talked about last week. Um, Watson preached on it. It was Jesus' first public miracle of turning water into wine, and then his cleansing of the corrupt money changers, getting them out of the temple. And Jesus' actions in chapter two were actually pretty controversial. He's, He's in essence disrupting the status quo system. And as leaders of the community, the Pharisees would have been particularly concerned about any kind of societal disruption, especially around the temple. So they confront Jesus. If you remember in chapter 2, Jesus was specifically challenged by the Jews, likely the Pharisees, on his authority. They ask him in verse 18, what sign can you show us for doing this? They're like, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? There's this confrontation and this conflict. So Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, is coming to Jesus after this happened, after this confrontation, after this this conflict. He comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Nicodemus is like, hey, I see what you're doing. I will submit that you're pointing to the kingdom of God. Can we talk about this? How can I get in on this? And Jesus answers him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, without being born from above. Now, the Greek word that's used here and translated in this version as, a, as from above, the, the Greek word is anothen. Anothen actually has three meanings, um, and, and any of them can be used in this one word. So, anothen could mean, again, it could also mean anew, and it could also mean from above. And in, in the context that we're in here, from above would've alluded to God. So I feel like this is like so in typical Jesus fashion to um, say something that has multi-layers. I'm like, couldn't you just use like a word that just meant the one thing that you meant? It has to be multi-layered. Um, the triple meaning of this word gets lost a little bit in the translation and that's why you see it translated differently in different Bible translations. And that's where the phrase, this, this verse is where the phrase born again Christian comes from, even though that's, that's not technically specifically what Jesus said. He said, you must be born anophon. Now Now, it makes sense that Nicodemus, who remember his entire religious hope lies upon his lineage, so his birth. It makes sense that Nicodemus would misunderstand which definition of anothen that Jesus meant and assume he meant to be born again. And he would think again physically. So he asks, he's like, what? How can anyone be born after after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? This question seems kind of dumb to us, I think, Sometimes it's like, dude, you are one of the most highly educated people of this society. You're an older man. No, Nicodemus, you cannot go back in the womb (laughs) and be born again. That's a hard no. But let's let's give him a chance here. He was stuck in this mindset, this very specific framework. Remember, Nicodemus was The top of the top, he could not have been better bred or better born. He was proud of and dependent on his first birth, his whole status, and therefore his whole life depended on it. So for him, he could not fathom a more qualifying birth than the one he had already experienced. In his current religious system, his birth afforded him the most privileged spot, and he assumed that that meant he was at the front of the line for entrance into the kingdom of God. So if Jesus is saying, you have to be born again to see the kingdom, to him he's thinking, okay, well it must, be, it must be, I must be born again then of the same woman that bore me the first time because that birth was highly qualifying. He, he didn't understand that Jesus was using anothen in another sense. Jesus was referring to a totally different kind of birth, a birth anew and from above. Jesus continues, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished when I, that I said to you, you must be born anothin, from above. The, wor- the wind blows where it chooses, you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Jesus is explaining here that the marks of being born of the Spirit are different than those of physical heritage. In physical birth, the identifying markers of the family that you belong to can typically be seen in um, matching physical features, mannerisms, um, and status. Being born of the Spirit does not depend on this kind of lineage. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Natural generation comes through physical birth, but spiritual generation comes from God. The character and identifying information that's required to see the kingdom of God is not the kind that's determined by being born of an elite family, even a religiously elite family like Nicodemus, but is is determined by being born of God, which is the last meaning of anothen, from above or from God. The markers of being born of God are a reorientation and redefinition of ourselves in light of a new point of origin. It's recognizing and living into the character and identity that have been determined by the source of our birth. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. It is a little confusing. He doesn't get it. And the next verse he asks, how can these things be? And Jesus (laughs) corrects him a little. He's a little surprised and says, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus, again, had the most, religious, the most religious knowledge and opportunity. He was highly educated and still could not understand. Jesus continues, Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is saying, I'm trying to explain this to you in a way you can understand. If I told you how it actually is, how would you ever get this? Jesus is actually trying to relate things, he's trying to relate to things that Nicodemus would understand, like the process of human reproduction. He, he refers to um, an Old Testament story about Moses that Nicodemus would have been really familiar with as a teacher of the law. In this story, the people of Israel were afflicted by poisonous snakes. They were getting bit and dying. In this, so it, Moses appeals to God and God gives a solution. He tells Moses to make a serpent from bronze and put it on a pole and anyone who looked up upon the bronze serpent who had been bit by a poisoned snake would then live. This would have been a very familiar story to Nicodemus. Jesus is trying to give him insight into the kingdom of God and how he can be a part of it, even going so far as to try to explain his own role as the savior by using something familiar to him. Now we don't have a record of Nicodemus' response. That's the end of the conversation in, in this section. So why did John decide that this was a story worth recording? In, in some ways, it sort of seems like it's just a story meant to like put Nicodemus on blast or pour negative light onto the Pharisees. But um, when we look at it in light of, of John's self-proclaimed purpose, again, in writing this whole gospel, he clearly states it in chapter 20, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In recounting Nicodemus' first encounter with Jesus, John is allowing us to watch this guy who thinks he knows all the right answers come to Jesus, be told he actually doesn't know any of the answers, and then be told the truth on how he can find the answers. I think we're meant to, in one way or another, relate with Nicodemus in the story. Nicodemus's experience here shows us that even, even though we are very dependent um, culturally on certainty, and for, and for us, we're dependent on the certainty that comes from thinking we have the right answers due to our education, our religious heritage, whatever privilege that we were born with, and that's, that's not how we get the answers we're looking for. These are written so that you may believe and have life. So at this point in the text, we've explored through verse 15 of John, chapter 3, so what comes next is the big one. Again, we're in John chapter 3, the big one. John 3.16 has made appearances in sports stadiums. It's on the bottom of fast food cups. Um, Tim Tebow painted it on his face. Um, It's been reproduced millions of times on bumper stickers and T-shirts. It's been called the gospel in a nutshell and while i can't we cannot deny the powerful words of john 3:16 um however i think that when it's taken on its own like this taken out of context and used just by itself we lose some of its potency i think it's actually more powerful than than we we actually think it is verses 16 through 21 of chapter 3 are in elaboration and expansion of the concept of new birth being born from above that nicodemus is so curious about so let's look at verse sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but may have eternal life. So, what does this verse have to do with the new birth? Um, I'd say that it gives us the John three sixteen. I think gives us three insights into this conversation that's happened. This this complicated concept of new birth. So there are three things. First. John 3.16 clarifies who initiates the new birth process, and that's God. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to do this. We do not create or give birth to ourselves. God does. We are to be born of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, John 3.16 gives us direction and insight into our role in the new birth. We have a part to play, too. We are to believe. Now, it's important to recognize here that to believe is not just an intellectual acceptance of something as the truth. It, it certainly is that, but again, some things get lost in the translation from Greek to English, and that definition of believe is incomplete. So, the Greek word that's translated as believe is pistuo. Pistuo in the Bible is translated sometimes as believe. But in other places in the Bible, it's translated as faith, trust, and do. It involves action and a dependence upon. So if to be born again means redefining our family of origin from our physical birth to God, the act of believing in John 3.16 is actually more likened to family fidelity, to loyalty, to the people that you come from, Since we are born of God, we're bound to God through family loyalty, and subsequently, we entrust our lives and the things that we think are valuable to God. Author and theology professor Brian Bantam writes this, we've reduced the question of Jesus' life to a spiritual mind game of belief, as if the real question is, how do we know? We've reduced the question of birth to a question of truth to be affirmed, or denied as if that is all we need to settle our place in the kingdom. Isn't that what Nicodemus was trying to do? To settle his place in the kingdom based on his knowledge, his religious knowledge. But Jesus emphasizes that religious knowledge, even the highest amount in Nicodemus' case, is not what leads to an understanding and the transformation of new birth. It is a realignment and redefining of our identity. The third thing um, insight that John 3.16 gives us is a window into what we are born into. So to be born isn't the end goal. We're actually born into something. Here the thing that we're born into in John 3.16 is translated and described as eternal life. Now we've taken a fascination with the descriptive word eternal as it pertains to time. So we think of it, of life as an endless duration, an endless life. And that's true. That is a characteristic of the new life that we can be born into, but it's not the only characteristic. The Greek words that comprise the translation eternal life, when you put them together communicate specifically not just the quantity of life, but the quality of that life. If we share in the life of whom we were born, an eternal life describes the life we are born into when we are born of God. That means we are born into the God life. We share in the life of God, which by character doesn't end because it's derived from God's very being. More importantly, this life, though, is characterized not as something that's distant and far away, but something we can begin to experience in the present, right now. Eternal doesn't mean later, it means unending. We use the phrase, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we use this phrase, now and not yet, or already and not yet. This references this description of life in God. We have access to the quality of life in God now when we are reborn, and by its nature, it doesn't end. So we see that looking at John 3.16 in the context of this conversation on rebirth reveals something different or maybe deeper than the interpretations we might have come to associate with this verse. The verse, honestly, this verse I think sometimes has been used as like a threat, especially when we focus on the word perish, like make sure you do this thing so you don't perish. Again, that this is why it's crucial to read the verse in context. We associate it with condemnation, like God is just so angry and like ready to destroy us. It's either believe and get rewarded or don't and be obliterated. But when we read verse 16 with the verses that follow in context, we realize that this is not the case. So let's read, let's, we'll reread John three sixteen and keep going. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the son of the only son of God. These, the verses that follow are talking about the condition of the world as it is. Without Jesus, we are condemned already, not because God is like breathing vengeance on us by sending Jesus, but because we are alone, we're on our own. John likens this to walking around in the dark with no direction, not being able to see where we're going and not being able to get where we want to go. So this last section of the text echoes this light, dark metaphor language that we find a lot in the Gospel of John. And I think it's really helpful in understanding more of this concept concept of what we are born into. So let's start at at, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light do not come into the light so that their deeds may be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so it may clearly be seen that their deeds have been done in God. God has seen humanity walking around in the darkness, unable to see even one step in front of them and pretending like we're good to go. Things do not grow in darkness, and things that don't grow do not live. By rule, they perish. So God, in love, sent light into the world, Jesus. An opportunity for humanity to actually see things as they really are, and further than that to see things the way that they are supposed to be. In some ways, I think the diagnosis that we, that we as humanity love dark over light sounds a little bit patronizing, like a little insulting. Of course we would want to step into the light of truth, nobody wants to be in the dark. Of course we want to see where we are and how to get to where we're going, that's a no-brainer. But I think if we, if we sit and really think about this, there are hard parts of walking in the light too, parts that make the dark seem really preferable. In light, we're not able to convince ourselves that we're something we're not. We're held accountable to act when we see something wrong happening to someone else. In the dark, we can just cocoon up, block everything else out, we can define ourselves however we'd like, even if it's not true, and in some ways that seems easier but the dark is not the place where we thrive, a place where we grow or recognize truth. We are not meant to walk around in the dark. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to, I'd, I wouldn't like to, I'm going to admit something to you um, that Drew is under strict orders to not elaborate on in any way, so don't ask him. Um, I, am, I am for real afraid of the dark. For real, I am. I think I think I've always been afraid of it, like as a kid. But the first time I really remember consciously feeling scared of it was actually as a young adult. Um, it was right after our first daughter Jolie was born. It was a few weeks after we'd come home from the hospital, and we were in like the sleepless fog of newborn parenting. And unbeknownst to me at the time, I had started experiencing postpartum depression. I didn't know that. So one evening, we're all we're watching TV. And I looked out the window while we were watching TV, and I recognized, I noticed that the sun was setting. And immediately upon this recognition, I felt this really random, odd sensation of fear. I defined it as fear. And I, I you know, we're watching something stupid on TV, and, I, and I'm like, I'm scared. And I'm, I realized that I was scared of the nighttime that was coming because of the darkness it brought with it. So a few hours later that night, in the dark, I woke up to feed Jolie. I, I woke up, I felt like I could feel the darkness. It was like a, like a scary presence, like it was with me. Um, and it was really isolating and it felt really unpredictable. Now I eventually came out of that season, I, I got to start sleeping again, um, but I use a nightlight. <laughs> oh. I do, just in case I have to wake up and be in the dark. I do not like being in the dark. Um, a few years ago, Drew and I visited Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. It's a super cool place. Um, it's the largest known cave system in the whole world. In Kentucky, who knew? At one point on the tour, um, you, you can tour part of it. it it's, they haven't found an end to it yet. But you can tour part of it. And on the tour, they take you into one of the largest cave rooms, it's called the rotunda. That's what it looks, it's hard to see, but it's, it's massive, it's this massive underground cave room. They take you in there and they turn out all the lights. uh, Reminder, you're in a cave underground. The darkness is overwhelming. Like it's different from being in the dark, not under the ground in a cave room. (laughs) They, and they leave the lights off for a few minutes they they tell you, like they, the tour guide says something like, really try to experience this kind of dark. Like, <laughs> take advantage of like being able to, to have this kind of darkness because this is not what it's like to be dark, not in this cave, which I absolutely, of course, was horrified by. Um, I think that I squeezed um, all the blood out of Drew's hand. But there was something to that darkness. It's, it's, like, it's like I could feel, like feel the darkness, like in my... In my postpartum days, it felt like a presence that was, that was like with me somehow. In the cave, it felt like it had a weight to it, like it was on me. We were in this cave, we were under the ground. The darkness wasn't just a presence, it was a force. Even though we couldn't see it, we could feel it, it was, it was almost oppressive. And I'll tell you, I, I, felt, I felt that same kind of, of heavy oppression A couple weeks ago when I heard the news from Florida of another school shooting. I felt the heaviness of darkness when we mourned the passing of one of our friends last month. All around us there are tragedies which seem inevitable and inescapable. I'm constantly reminded that even though I can't see darkness, I can feel its weight. Sometimes it feels like a heavy midnight, the darkest hour. And it feels like the darkness of a tomb where something's going to die. But here's the thing, and this is what's so remarkable about this passage and this story. Darkness does not have to mean death. Yes, a tomb is dark, but do you know what else is dark? A womb a baby develops in darkness for 40 weeks inside its mother. And yeah, there there might be moving shadows in the womb, but a baby must be born in order to be in the light. We now have the opportunity to be reborn into God's Light, if not for what God has done, we would have no choice but to be in the dark, for the dark to define our identities and our loyalties and our actions. But now we can walk in the light to see where we're going, even if it means having to acknowledge we're not where we wanna be. Light takes things and transforms them. That is what we are born into through the new birth that had Nicodemus so confused. We are born into a life of transformation In a few weeks, we're going to observe Easter. I can't wait. Love Easter. We'll observe Easter, a time when we remember and celebrate the day that Jesus, the light of the world, came and transformed a tomb into a womb. So he had been killed and was placed in this cave-like tomb because they all thought he was dead and done. This big stone was rolled in front of the entrance, blocking light from coming in and sealing the darkness in but jesus what we celebrate at easter is that jesus transformed that dark cave from a place for a dead person to deteriorate to a place from which he would emerge into the light of day the stone was rolled away jesus emerged and walked out into the light And because of God's initiation, we are invited to follow Jesus on the same birth path, to see the darkness of the world not as our burial stone, but as the place from which we are given the opportunity to be born anothen, anew. The requirement of being born again in order to see the kingdom of God is actually not a requirement at all. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to be born of God into the light. And in this new birth, we're invited to take on a new name, a new perspective, a new trajectory. That that doesn't mean that everything about the identity of of our first birth is left behind. In fact, I'd say that identity is still very important. We bring our name, our heritage, our first birthright with us through our second birth, but even those things are transformed in the light. To be born anew is to enter into a new knowledge of who we understand ourselves to be. To be birthed in the spirit of God means to become a child of God, to bear the likeness of God. It transforms our identity and gives us new possibilities and opportunities because of the family we now come from. And more than that, birth involves a future. When a baby is born, it's not expected to stay a baby, it's expected to become someone, it is not yet. Birth is just the beginning. We only need to be open to transformation in order to be reborn. Sometimes I think there's this notion that creeps in on us, that nags at us, that like we need to get our stuff together because that's what real engagement with Jesus looks like. That's how we transform. That is a lie. Let's return to the beginning of the story when, Jesus appro- when, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus. If you remember... John makes it a point to write that Nicodemus came to engage with Jesus at night, in the dark. I I like how author and pastor Nadia Bowles-Weber explains this point. I'm going to read it to you. Much is usually made of the fact that Nicodemus just didn't seem to get it. But today I'd like to make much of the fact that Nicodemus showed up. He didn't have to take the risks he took. He came in the dark, but at least he came. Nicodemus is a good example for us of not being afraid to show up even when we don't have it all figured out. He's an example of not being afraid to ask questions and thereby reveal to others that we don't have it all figured out. He teaches us to not be afraid to look for answers to our questions. Answers don't come to those who think they already know it all. The quest for an answer must begin in uncertainty, in the dark. We can come to Jesus in our darkness, if that's depression or our doubt or the darkness of our questions. We can come under cover of darkness in anonymity, um, incognito, hiding from the rest of the world, scared of what other people might think. We can come and Jesus will engage. He, He will likely say some challenging stuff that like he did to Nicodemus, but we can still come. He will not walk away if we don't know all the answers or even if we think we do. He, walking in the light doesn't mean having all the answers. In fact, I think seeing things as they really are might cause more questions than answers. Even for those of us who proclaim that we have, that we have experienced this new birth into the light, there are still shadows. Walking in the light doesn't mean there's no shadow places. It, it simply means we are open to being seen to be exposed, to know and believe, and everything that believe entails to believe the truth and be transformed. As we, as we get closer to the end here, I, I want to read um, John three sixteen and 17 um, from The Message, which is a contemporary translation, sort of in everyday language. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. As Matthew talked about last week, Jesus didn't come to lay shame on us for walking in the dark, trying to find our way, doing our best. He came to take that shame on himself and become our light so so that through a new birth, we could become a part of God's family and in answer to Nicodemus's inquiry, truly see the kingdom of God. Throughout this series in John, we we have and we will keep coming back to John's self-proclaimed purpose in chapter 20 of writing his gospel, which this language actually echoes John 3.16. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So which part of this story, this one, the one about Nicodemus, is written for you? Which part is written so you may believe and have life? Maybe you see yourself in Nicodemus, the, the part of him that's Holding on so tightly to the assurance that comes with the right answers instead of trusting in the new birth process and making a decision to give your life to God. Maybe you see yourself in the other part of Nicodemus that's frustrated that he doesn't know the answers and you're afraid that Jesus might walk away from your questions. Or maybe maybe it's what it means to believe, that expanded definition that's got you this morning. That participation in the kingdom of God is not about having bullet-pointed answers to the mysteries of faith, but it actually involves action and responsibility because living in the light is exposing and enables us to see see things clearly as they are. Or maybe for you today, it's the heaviness of the darkness, that the darkness feels oppressive like it's a tomb, like it's a place where you're going to die. Or maybe you can't seem to let yourself be vulnerable to to other people or to God in the light. As we finish this morning, I want to remind you that the new life God offers is one of transformation. Knowledge is transformed into trust. Doubt goes from something that's fearful to something that's hopeful. The darkness of a tomb is transformed into the opportunity and expectation of a womb. God takes what we bring and the place where we are and births it into something new. We, we aren't qualified by what we bring or don't bring to the table. We are asked like Nicodemus to come, even with our old identities, our wrong assumptions, even if it's nighttime, even if it's scared, even if we don't have all the answers, or even if we think that we do. We are simply asked to come Jesus will not walk away. He will engage, and we can be born again. Will you pray with me? God, I mean, you've seen me. You've seen me wrestle with this, um, with this concept, this this week, and um, it's hard. It, it's hard to let go. It's hard for me to let go of um, feeling like having the right answers puts me in the right position to be able to see your kingdom. Um, that, that's hard. It's, it's something that it, go, it goes against what we're being culturally trained to do. It's, it's, it goes against the way that we normally seek security, the, nor- the way that we normally seek high ground. And God... So this morning, will you will you infiltrate the darkness of our hearts, God? Will you allow us to understand that it doesn't mean that we are weak um, or dumb, God, to, to trust you, that we're not, that we're not worthless, that we're not unworthy of, of being born of you. I pray this morning that you will um, begin to transform um, our thinking, God, and in in so doing, that you will transform our hearts to understand um, how to walk in the light. Amen.